0: you're listening to the labor radio podcast weekly on this week's show
1: the workers themselves came together and defined what gender-based violence and harassment looked like for them and in fact that is reflected in the definition of the convention um, they defined what needed to happen in order for them to feel safe um, and for these abuses to stop.
0: That's from the Solidarity Center podcast. Then, on Union News, the UK's only all things union podcast.
2: There's a lot more LGBT plus people in leadership in the unions movement, but but that's because LGBT activists in the unions have got involved and managed to push good, positive equality policy and been seen as good, strong trade union colleagues.
0: Next on OEA Grow, the podcast from the Oregon Education Association.
2: I feel like previously, if
3: there was anything, any sort of like acting out of any way, it was like, you go to the principal's office mm. um, and maybe you right. get suspended or whatever. And I feel like now there's so there's a way bigger push to try to handle things in the classroom or try to make your classroom trauma-informed.
0: Plus two bonus tracks from the Labor History and Two podcast.
4: The year was 1946. That was the day that teachers in St. Paul, Minnesota, went on strike. And
0: we'll kick things off with a snippet of a song by the Seattle Labor Chorus for the recent nationwide Starbucks strike. I love coffee, I love tea, and I really love the folks who brew. We found this on Facebook and just thought you'd enjoy it. That's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to subscribe and share the show. It's what we like to call Sonic Solidarity. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show.
5: Hello, sisters and brothers, and welcome to the Solidarity Center podcast, an interview show that highlights and celebrates the individuals working for labor rights, the freedom to form unions and democracy across the globe. I'm your host, Shauna Bader Blau. I'm also the executive director of the Solidarity Center in Washington, D.C. We're coming up on November 25th and the start of 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. This year's theme focuses on uniting and taking action to end violence against women and girls. At workplaces around the world, uniting and taking action to stop sexual harassment, violence, and abuse is exactly what so many women have been doing for years. And one result is a new international treaty to end violence at work, including gender-based violence. Jane Pillinger and Robin Runge spoke with some of the amazing women who spent years campaigning at the global, local, and workplace levels to build momentum for C-190. These women's stories are in their new book, Stopping Gender-Based Violence and Harassment at Work, The Campaign for an ILO Convention.
6: I'm Jane Pillinger. I work as a global expert on gender-based violence uh, in the world of work.
1: And my name's Robin Rangi. I'm uh, one of three co-authors of this book.
6: We wanted to show how, you know, the voice of women workers and this this amazing campaign had had a really big impact in global policymaking. And as both feminists and activists, I think we all wanted to ensure that we documented the intersectional and diverse voices of voices and experience and leadership of women workers in their trade unions.
1: We saw this as such a uniquely powerful effort that was led by women union workers in collaboration around the world with human rights uh, organizations, feminist organizations, disability rights organizations, organizations. and it's, it's unprecedented. It went on for over a decade to really focus on eradicating gender-based violence and harassment in the world of work. And these workers identified that the most effective way to do that would to be to establish a global labor standard, because this is a global problem affecting workers all over the world. And so the push, the first push to get the International Labor Organization to even agree to put it on their standard setting agenda was tremendous. And it meant that these women leaders had to, in many instances, convince their union leadership that this was a priority for all members of their unions, that actually decent work is not possible unless we eradicate gender-based violence and harassment in the world of work.
6: So what what's really unique about the ILO Violence and Harassment Convention is that I mean, first of all, women, it was women workers who fought for an integrated approach to violence and harassment. So it, it addresses violence and harassment against all workers, but with a very strong focus on gender-based violence and harassment. Um, and the fact that we have now an in international law a human rights principle, and that's the principle that violence and harassment is a human rights violation and abuse, is quite a significant achievement and one that the workers' group really, really fought very, very hard for. It covers workers who are in an informal capacity, who are in precarious work. It even covers people who are in a recruitment process. And we know how important that has been in terms of sexual harassment, particularly where women have been asked for sexual favours in return for a job or indeed for keeping a job or indeed for a contract being extended. It also covers a wide definition of the world of work, which covers things like travel to and from work, um, as well as other activities that take place related to work, but outside of the workplace.
1: And so the end result of this document is a standard that covers and provides support and protections for all workers. The workers themselves came together and defined what gender-based violence and harassment looked like for them. And in fact, that is reflected in the definition of the convention. Um, They define what needed to happen in order for them to feel safe um, and for these abuses to stop. It's not enough to hold the individual who has done this accountable, but the employer creating work structures that perpetuate gender and power inequality, right, needs to be addressed as well.
6: And one of the things that's very clear is that we now have a very important convention uh, that that trade unions are using um, to both frame their collective bargaining agreements, their workplace policies, but also to put pressure on their governments to introduce laws that really do put in place the legal right to um, a world of work free from violence and harassment.
1: So the Solidarity Centre, over a decade ago, um, identified ending gender-based violence and harassment in the world of work as um, a key. So we mobilised our staff and our partners throughout the Global South. To really address gender based violence and harassment.
6: So, women from the global north and global south came together right across the world to come to a common agreement um, of really, you know, gender transformations in the world of work, but also gender transformations in their own unions.
1: And then, after the ILO put this on their standard setting agenda, the Solidarity Centre led a group of 40 workers in 2018 and in 2019 to participate. Um, in the negotiations in Geneva uh, that lasted two weeks on each occasion. And it, it, this, this work was tremendous because we brought the actual workers themselves to these spaces who had led these campaigns back in their countries um, to then be in that space at the United Nations and see their work reflected in the drafts of these documents. And they've now brought those experiences back with them um, to their work. And now they're seeing these women, unionists, are now seeing – as true leaders in their communities, in their unions. And now they're leading the efforts to implement, which is really hard. Now that the ILO has adopted the convention, the heavy lift is to take the language there and make sure that it is in their collective bargaining agreements with employers, um, that it is in their national laws, that they are leading the effort to get countries to um, amend their laws so that they can ratify the convention. For the Solidarity Center podcast,
5: I'm Shauna Bader Blau. Thanks for listening.
7: Hello and welcome to Union Jews, the UK's only All Things Union podcast. I'm Simon Sapper and in this special episode we talk to newly elected TUC President Maria Axel. In announcing Maria's election, TUC General Secretary Frances O'Grady said, As a proud lesbian, she is our first LGBT plus president. And I know she will do everything in her power to champion equality at work and in society. Maria's optimism, enthusiasm and sheer human decency have won her respect and affection at the TUC and beyond. Those qualities will be essential at a time when working people face the longest, harshest squeeze on living standards in modern history and unions are fighting for a fair deal. Maria is an officer at the Greater London branch of the Communication Workers Union, the CWU, the union she joined in 1988 when she started with BT as a telecoms engineer. Before this, she was a care worker for people with learning disabilities and then in mental health and a member of what is now Unison. Maria Axel, you're very welcome to this Union Juice podcast. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you, Simon.
7: You've just been elected as the president of the TUC, but... What is the role of the President of the TUC?
2: Well, the formal role is to ensure you chair and have good order for the General Council, the Executive, and, of course, the Congress. It's a great honour and a responsibility to be elected. It's uh, a post just for one year. And, yes, I think it's going to be an interesting year with the challenging times ahead for both the union movement and in general.
7: In terms of the constraints of the role accepting those. What what are your priorities? What are your hopes for the year ahead?
2: Yes, as you say, the constraints the role. I mean, you're there as T U C president to be a be a sort of figurehead for the whole of the movement and therefore it's got to be about things that matter to the whole of the union movement. I suppose I see my main aim, I've got lots of lots of other things that will probably come out in this podcast. My main aim would be to get over the get over to people that unions are there for every single worker in Britain, basically. Whatever sector you work in, whether you work in new sectors of the economy that aren't already unionised, whether you're working in the public sector, the third sector, the private sector, whether you're in a professional job or whether you're not, that every workplace needs a a union and every worker needs to be a union member. That will be my overall aim of trying to get over.
7: I mentioned earlier that, that you are the first LGBTQ+. President of the TUC, yes. I mean, is it first out, LGBT. first out. That's true. I think it's very important to make that
2: distinction <laughs> yes. for sure. But and, to, um, to, um, something I'm very proud of. and well, proud to be right. um, proud to be an out lesbian in the role as well.
7: well. To what extent is it a breakthrough moment?
2: I think it is a breakthrough moment because I'm the first, but it represents a steady increase that's been happening over over decades, really, of LGBT representation within within the different affiliates and also within the work equality work of the TUC and it's due to there's a lot more lgbt plus people in leadership in the unions movement but but that's because lgbt activists in the unions have got involved and managed to push good positive equality policy and been seen as good strong trade union colleagues uh, by their by their by their comrades and friends so i think it's it is a breakthrough moment but it's built on it's built on the work that's been going on in many affiliates for many for many years. You're
7: also, as well as being president you TUC and active in your branch, and <laughs> you're also vice chair of TULO, the yes, Trade Union Labour Party yes. or, or, organisation. Now, and this is, I mean, I would say, pose a question to you is are is unions inevitably political? And if they are, why is affiliation to the Labour Party important or relevant or appropriate?
2: I do think that unions are inevitably political. When we represent our members in the workplace and in the wider industrial arena, it quickly becomes a political matter. And it's right for us as union people to do politics. I think it's we shouldn't apologise for that. That's uh, logical. If we want to improve our members' lives in the wider sense, in the workplace and in the wider community, we have to get involved. I mean, it, issues of economic policy, issues of social policy have a direct effect in the workplace. I mean, look at legislation on employment rights and the way in which anti-union laws have been brought in, that's a material effect of legislation on what we can can and can't do as union people. And you know, hopefully we will have a more progressive government and we can improve a progressive floor on employment rights. And that will make a real difference to what we're doing as, as union members. And also, I think the wider issues of Public ownership and making arguments for that within particular sectors. That's a political thing that has a direct effect on job security, on standards of pay and terms and conditions, and also wider welfare issues. Lots of, There's lots of in-work poverty. Lots of union members depend on, on benefits and support. And so we've got something to say about that. These are all political matters that you can't negotiate directly with an employer, but they affect... Our members' lives.
7: Maria Br- 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 Axel, TUC President. Thank you very much indeed.
2: <laughs> and thank you, Simon.
7: <laughs> Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon on the next Union Tubes. Bye for now.
1: You're listening to OEA Grow. A member-led production of the Oregon Education Association and a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network.
8: Hello, everybody, and welcome to season five. I'm Alexis Hennessey, your host for this season. And today I have joining me two awesome um, local colleagues. I happen to have the pleasure of having worked with both of these fantastic folks in recent years. Um, So I'm going to let them introduce themselves. But I've got Talia Akri and Anna McNeely with me today. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Why doesn't each of you um, just give a little bit of background, whatever you care to choose uh, to share about yourself? Go ahead and uh, let our listeners know who you are and what you do. I can uh, I can go first. I uh, my name is Talia
9: Akri. At the time of airing this, I hope that it will say that I'm an LCSW. Um, I just took my test and finally got my hours in, so um, I am right now currently at. Recording a CSWA. So it means just that I'm uh, becoming a clinical social worker, but right now I'm a licensed social worker in schools.
3: Well, I am Anna McNeely. I went to UNC Chapel Hill for my master's in social work. Um, and then after I graduated, I decided that I wanted to move across the country. And so I came to Oregon. And I got a job with Multnomah ESD as well, working as a behavior interventionist. And then the last two years, though, I've been working out at Corbett, um, which is a gen ed school, um, and their special
8: education is full inclusion in the classrooms. There seems to be this correlation between like the more and more we bring mental health to the forefront, the more and more people are both able to understand or perceive it, but also seemingly the less, um, I think I'm going to say like, closeted people are with their mental health needs Mm -hmm. like people are not just like controlling 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 until they get home to their like safe spot that seems to be showing up but I'm sure that there's more to it than that right (laughs) but that's how it looks from the outside
9: totally it becomes an it's becoming nor normalized or universal I wouldn't say that with everything that's happened in the last 10 years it's become a more um, pervasive issue
1: Mm -hmm. yeah
9: things like anxiety or depression I
3: would say, too, I feel like now when we see these like this mental health and these behaviors that are happening in classrooms, I feel like previously, if there was anything, any sort of like acting out of any way, it was like you go to the principal's office Mm. um, and maybe you get suspended or whatever. And I feel like now there's so there's a way bigger push to. Try to handle things in the classroom or try to make your mm-hmm. classroom trauma informed and um, have a calming yeah. corner and all of that stuff. And it's just these behaviors and like the things behind these behaviors are like you guys are saying, like they're so much more universal. It's not as taboo to talk about. And so it's almost requiring like another skill set in the classrooms mm-hmm. that maybe wasn't required before. Um, or wasn't expected or whatever.
8: Mm -hmm. Well, and it's interesting. I think I've heard you both now say through your answers that what the actuality of being an educator or any sort of staff within a school, right. And for me, the, the word educator covers any adult who interacts with a student in any school building facility, right. So whether that's, you know, an outdoor type school or whether that's in a classroom or whether that's serving lunch or, or, you know, passing papers or whatever it is, um, uh, any educator, anyone serving in that role is still receiving almost the same teacher prep program from years ago. So there maybe has been some progression around lesson development, right? We're talking universal design for learning, right? Or backwards design or whatever it's being called in the current modality, right? I think it all comes back full circle. But the 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 content seems to update in regards to progressive standards of education. But I don't know that we've necessarily progressed our teacher prep programs to prepare people for mental health and behavioral needs of the learners they're going to serve. And I think that, um, that seems to be both a disservice to our educators, but also a disservice to our, to our learners and families.
9: I was just thinking that like when I was a kid, I remember my parents went through a divorce and I remember going, like being called down. This is, you know, I don't know, 80 something. And I'm going to age myself too much, but, um, <laughs> I remember being called down to the counselor's office and so there was there was mental health support in schools I think way back when right but I think it was more common to deal with issues of um I don't know like divorce or you know death mm-hmm. in the family these kind of more like like what we would call normative issues that we would think of mm-hmm. as like societally acceptable and now there's issues coming up for a lot of our students that um, a lot of our students are talking about how they are non-binary or how they are dealing with issues having to do with um, really intensive uh, mental health needs like depression or um, PTSD or these kind of Mm -hmm. like heavier um, and more pointed issues. So it's almost like, it's not just that they're, um, normalizing it's that they're they're i don't want to call them bigger because i don't want to like put a um good bad binary on them but it's like they're they're more intensive issues too that you're Mm -hmm. right Anna they they require a skill set and a level of training that maybe if what i've heard from teachers when they talk to me about it they just don't want even the um responsibility of handling some of these issues right
1: For more OEA professional learning opportunities, visit our webpage at grow.oregoned.org.
4: I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1946. That was the day that teachers in St. Paul, Minnesota, went on strike. It was the first ever organized walkout of teachers in the United States. The strike was organized by the St. Paul Federation of Teachers, Local 28. The strike lasted a month and involved nearly 1,200 teachers. Working conditions at the St. Paul schools were intolerable. Many buildings were poorly maintained. One school had just one bathroom and sink for 180 students. Some schools were heated with just one coal stove. The teachers were some of the worst paid urban educators in the nation. The schools did not pay for textbooks, so teachers often paid for books for poor students out of their own pockets. The teachers in Local 28 did not want to walk out, but decided a strike was the only way to change these deplorable conditions. On the first day of the strike, the temperature was only three degrees above zero. But despite the frigid weather, the teachers picketed at all 77 public schools in St. Paul. Their slogan was strike for better schools. Many across the nation were shocked that the teachers went out on strike. The strike was even covered by Life magazine, which ran a story of teachers cooking a Thanksgiving turkey on the picket line. The teachers enjoyed grassroots local support as only 25 teachers crossed the picket lines. A minister's association wrote to city officials, writing, We believe that a way must be found that will deal fairly with the members of a profession to whom we entrust the training of our children who are the future citizens of our democracy. The teachers won a number of victories, including salary increases and the distribution of free textbooks, for students labor history and 2 brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith show
0: and that's it for this edition of the labor radio podcast weekly our roundup up highlights from just a few of the more than 150 Labor Radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to all the shows you heard today in the show notes, and you'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them use the hashtag Labor Radio Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram labor radio podcast weekly was edited this week by patrick Dixon. i produce the show and our social media guru, as always is mr harold phillips follow us on twitter and instagram at labor radio net find out more on our website labor radio for labor radio podcast weekly this is chris Garlock. hey stay active and stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show.